You're listening to Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Here, we'll chat about all things marriage, motherhood, and modern home economics in all honesty. I'm your host, Maurice Young. All right. Well, thank you so much, Syl, for being a guest on Young Honest Mother, the podcast. You're so welcome. I'm so thrilled to be here. (laughs) Yay. So to start out, tell us a little bit more about who you are. Who is Syl? Yeah. Who is Syl? Gosh, uh, I am a mother. (laughs) And uh, I'm professionally... uh, I started out as a nurse practitioner, a family nurse practitioner. Hmm. And then um, over time, I became a psychotherapist and then, and then evolved into uh, teaching workshops uh, with my daughter, which I'll say more about in a minute. And we wrote a book together. And... Now I'm, you know, I've kind of brought all my, my professional stuff, my wisdom of experience together. And, um, I have a part-time coaching practice, Mm. um, coaching mothers of preteen and teen daughters. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. Let's dig into a couple of those a little bit more. Sure. Let's start with, um, writing a book with your daughter. Tell us a little bit more about what the book is called. And then I'd love to hear more about how the idea for the, for the book even came to be. Sure. So the book is called mothering and daughtering, keeping your bond strong through the teen years. Hmm. And it's a really unique book in that uh, my daughter, Eliza wrote the daughtering half and I wrote The Mothering Half. It's kind of a flip book. So there's, there's two books in one. And then the middle chapter that we wrote together is on communication. Wow. Yeah. And the way it came into being was pretty organically. Um, what happened was when she um, was 14 years old, mm-hmm. uh, I, I had been leading these very small mother da- free mother-daughter workshops at the Omega Institute in the Hudson Valley of New York, which was about a half an hour from our house. And for a couple summers during their family week of programming, they asked me to come over and I, I led a mother preteen teen daughter workshop. They were called samplers. So they were an hour and a half long. Okay. And with a social worker colleague of mine, we, we um, just had fun doing this. And one year uh, when Eliza, my daughter was 14 my colleague, um, I think she, she got ill at the last minute and couldn't come and co-teach with me. So I just said to Eliza the night before, uh, would you like to come and teach a workshop with me? And uh, Eliza uh, was a, you know, kind of a born leader and 
uh, already. She was a camp mm. counselor already. So, you know, I wasn't asking her something. I mean, I knew as, as her mother that it would probably be something she'd want to do. And I didn't put any pressure on her. And she was delighted. And uh, so we went the next day and it was a much better workshop than I'd ever taught because um, I was co-teaching with a, a teen girl and the teen preteen daughters who were there. Um, yeah, we're, we're much more interested. <laughs> right. They could relate to the person who was speaking to them, I bet. Yeah. And people love the workshop so much that Omega asked us if we, we would come back the next summer and teach a weekend. And that, that was when she was 15 and she's almost 29 now. So doing it for, for almost 15 years. And so we taught for a few years and our workshops were always uh, filled, very popular. We loved it and um, got lots of good feedback. And we were just kind of drawn to, uh, writing a book for mothers and daughters that couldn't necessarily afford to come across the country or to pay for a weekend workshop. We wanted to make the work um, more accessible, mm-hmm. um, you know, for $12, $13 book. <laughs> um, and we kind of put our body of work together in that book. Wow. Actually, um, one exciting thing is that is that uh, we just recorded our audiobook. Oh, cool. Um, Are you guys both speaking in it then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, um, someone ha- a year ago, someone had asked us if we wanted to do it, meaning they they wanted to uh, record our audiobook. And mm-hmm. we said, sure, as long as we can be the you know, we can be the speakers. <laughs> right. And they said, no, sorry, we hire, you know, we hire actors or, you know, professional voice people. And we said, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to produce it. Thank you very much. So we produced okay. it because we couldn't imagine because the books are so personal and they're so, they're written in our voices. So, uh, right. so we ended up just investing our own money in it and it's about um, to come out in about a month. That's so exciting. I, I really want to listen to that now. Oh, yeah. I love when authors themselves narrate their own audiobooks. There's something very special about yeah, hearing right. their words in their own voice. Yeah, yeah. Especially when it's nonfiction and you're actually not a character. You're actually... Right. <laughs> right. You're reading your own life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm curious about the material that you were teaching in the workshop, which then became distilled into a book, like how did you start to isolate these ideas and these tips enough to be able to share with them? Like what was going on in your own mothering and daughtering relationship that really sparked you to even get out there in the first place and share what you had learned? Wow. Good question. Well, um, it all began uh, when I had a daughter you know, when she was first born. And I, even in the early years, I was anxious about the teen years because my mother and I had kind of lost our connection during that time. Mm. And um, 
like really lost our connection. It was a very, very difficult time for our relationship. And it took a long time for us to recover from that. And I just instinctively felt that that wasn't a given. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, there's this kind of talk that, that happens um, around. I I know a lot of mothers who come to our workshops uh, share this, that, you know, they'll have their little, little baby or their toddler walking around and people will say, really just unsolicited will say, uh, oh my God, well, just wait until she's a teenager. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> just um, both Eliza and I um, just felt that was really off and that uh, teenagers might be challenging at times. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're figuring out who they are. And, um, but they're also um, so uh, much fun and so creative and so original and honest and brave and all the, all the good stuff. And mm. um, so we felt, I felt personally I that drawn to this work because it became my, my, my personal project to not, lose my daughter during the teen years to really um, find out all I could find out and uh, about um, was this truly something that had to happen or um, I was to discover um, through my research and attachment parenting that uh, attachment parenting goes, you know, all the way through adolescence and Um, It's just different than attachment parenting when your kids are younger, but that, um, that, that really keeping your bonds strong through the teen years is about understanding attachment and about understanding your role as a mother, as a parent in, um, in keeping that bond strong in um, providing that safe harbor for your teenager. And, uh, so that, that really, um, it evolved, it was born out of, um, my concern that this not be repeated in Mm -hmm. the next generation. Mm. So what are some of the things that really stood out to you during that teen period as key ideas or key approaches to take into this period of time to better cultivate that bond and that connection? Sure. Well, um, you know, knowledge is power and I mean, positive power here. And so in some ways, when we're thinking about parenting an adolescent, um, we are in the power position as parents, again, positive power. Um, and I mean, what I mean by that is that we're, um, sometimes I even call it, (laughs) um, the alpha position. And I don't mean that aggressively. I just mean that, um, we're in charge, not, we're not authoritarian, but we have a loving authority, um, is what kids that what teenagers need. Mm -hmm. Um, they need us to be, 
um, they need to take cues from us. You know, that we're the elders, we're the wise ones. Uh, and what things get complicated uh, when I notice when parents don't understand um, that our teenagers um, from an attachment perspective need to orient uh, to someone mm-hmm. and uh, quite like when our kids are younger and um, someone that they can take their cues from. And there's a peculiar and even dangerous phenomenon that's happening more and more in our culture. And we call it peer orientation. Mm. And we're seeing it, we've seen it for a few generations, um, but it's getting more and more where kids, um, when they become preteens and teens, there's a culture of peer orientation that's even um, considered acceptable and even normal, and it's not normal. Um, It's dangerous. It's where kids are taking cues from other kids, and it's incredibly anxiety-producing for a teenager to have to rely on their peer group because, as you can imagine, um, they're not adults. So um, they, you know, this is why... Teen suicides are up. This is why um, we hear about parents kind of losing the connection is that there is such a strong pull from the peer group and um, including now that it's just exacerbated by, um, you know, all the phone use. So kids are hanging out with in, in middle school and high school Um, primarily with kids their own age. And then add to that, they get home and they're still hanging out with them on the phone unless there are, you know, limits set at home. And so what happens in a worst case scenario is a kind of Lord of the Flies situation where the adults are not aware of what's going on and kids get in over their heads and, um, it, it, it's, you know, it's a very, very precarious situation. So a lot of times when mothers are bringing their daughters to our workshops, it's almost like an intervention. And um, what, especially in the teen workshop, and what we find again and again is that just being with their mother and with other mothers and daughters where the intention is to have time, downtime, and connect, Mm -hmm. is that their attachment cues, um, their attachment needs, um, naturally, even in a two-day period, start to return more and more to their mother. I mean, it's really amazing to watch um, how naturally, how much, um, when kids are taken out of a peer situation into a really conducive Mm -hmm. um, multi-generational intergenerational situation um, that's safe and loving and without phones that um, the bond gets stronger as you can imagine. Yeah. So, okay. Talk to me a little bit more about what peer orientation looks like in contrast with the more, um, parental orientation. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but I'm curious about the 
the differences between the two? Well, I mean, peer orientation means that they're, they're, they're more attached to their friends than to their parents, if I could put it really simply. Mm-hmm. So there's almost like an anxious obsession. Um, we, you, uh, there's, there's only one primary orientation. Um, so your kid's either going to be, right. your teenager's either going to be primarily oriented to you, the parent, or primarily oriented to the teenagers. And that's pure orientation. And there's all kinds of ways to, you know, there's symptoms of pure orientation. It's where kids become anxious, sullen. They don't look you in the eye. Um, they um, shut down. They, all they want to do is hang out with their friends. Um, they, yeah, you, you lose contact with each other in a, you know, in, in a fundamental way. And that's, that's basically what happened with me and my mother is that mm-hmm. I, I just was hanging out with my peers and my mother did not know how to, how to stay connected to me. It's really the mother's and the father's responsibility, but right. my poor mother didn't know what was happening. And even then we're talking decades ago. I, you know, I'm in my early sixties. So this has been going on since after world war two, um, where more and more, uh, mothers started working outside the home, um, extended families were less common. So grandparents weren't around as much. Um, you know, people were moving across the country, living in different, you know, and it just the culture changed so dramatically, um, more and more kids were spending more and more time with their peers. And so what happened over time is that it was starting to be considered normal, sort of like, oh, let the, you know, they're supposed to hang out with their friends. They're supposed to reject you. And um, we did, and mothering and daughtering, we disagree with that. Hmm. Uh, we um, feel that, yeah, your kids are going to resist you. There's some healthy resistance. They're trying on different identities. They're, you know, their psychological um, development is about them discovering, you know, who they are, what their identity is. And so um, that's, you know, yeah, there's resistance, but, but really um, a teenager needs his or her parents to be the primary orientation because they're the adults. Um, right. They really, they're the only people that are going to have your back. You know, you cannot rely on friends to be adults, teen friends. You know, they can be friends. They can be wonderful friends. Um, And it's just not good for a kid's development uh, for that orientation to shift off of the adults in their life onto their peers. Mm -hmm. So how can we keep that orientation focused on the parents primarily? Well, um, again, knowledge is power. So by knowing that this is a phenomenon in the culture uh, and that the actually the storyline is inaccurate, you know, it's mm. gotten so that um, therapists, educators, 
don't even understand the problem because it's it's been going on for decades and there's this sort of standard rap that I was just saying that where the let them go. I mean, I've I've had women mamas who come to me for coaching who are in a really tough situation and they've had a professional or an educator say what's going on is normal. And she comes to me, she knows something's really off. And I, I, you know, I diagnose, I, I, my perspective is attachment oriented. When, when there's a behavioral problem, when there's a communication problem, um, I'm always looking through an attachment lens that the, that the issue starts with a relation, a relational problem. That, that there's a problem in con- in connection, and so right. <clears throat> um, grounding, for instance, or punishment, is not going to help unless that time at home is for true grounding, meaning um, not punishment but connection, mm. and really like, okay, what happened, and and how can we find each other again? Um, because kids act out who are peer oriented and they're they're in trouble. They need adults to be a loving authority. Mm-hmm. Mm. So when does it start? Like how how early can we start preparing for this teen phase? Like, and what are some of the things that we can start introducing into our relationships with within mothers and daughters so that we can strengthen this bond as we go through this phase rather than fall apart. Yeah. And, and also of course this will be with mothers and sons and fathers and daughters and fathers and sons. Um, Mm -hmm. Really the, the, the guy who coined peer orientation, the attachment psychologist is a guy named Gordon Neufeld and Mm -hmm. he's from British Columbia and um, he's been doing this for many decades, and he has a fantastic book called Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. Mm. And it's just a phenomenal book. And I, 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 I quote him quite a bit on my side of, of, of our book um, because he's a you know, he, he's the guy, he's the guy that's done the research. And, uh, basically it's not necessarily a teen thing when you say, when should we prepare? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen kids that are seven, eight, nine years old be peer oriented. It depends on, you know, where they're hanging out and what, yeah, what kind of influences um, they're under. I mean, usually it doesn't happen until middle school, um, but uh, it's it's not so much age as uh, what whether there's a peer-oriented culture in that, in your kid's class or in the community. Um, you know, the mean girl um, kind of stereotype mm-hmm. or, or, um, is, is really all it is, is pure culture. It's, a, you know, or bullying. Mm-hmm. 
It's when adults leave the room, literally and figuratively, that peer culture takes over. Um, and adults need to be there to guide our kids um, to, you know, be honorable, um, um, kind, um, thoughtful mm -hmm. citizens. And if they're all learning from each other in the lunchroom and all the teachers, you know, there's nobody there. Right. Um, you know, there can be some really tricky situations where kids get bullied, where they're left out, um, that are very traumatic and uh, lead to very dangerous behavior. Mm -hmm. So probably what I'm telling you, um, and for moms that are listening, I, I'm really attachment parenting is it's just instinctual. You know, when I when I teach this in my workshops, when people read our book, they go, oh, thank you. I, I felt like, you know, it's just like it resonates. It's not, you know, I'm not, we're what we're teaching is natural. It may not be normal, but it's natural. You know what I'm saying? And so I don't want to, um, I don't want parents who are listening to feel afraid. I want them to feel hopeful, like, right. You know, I can be, um, I can trust my instincts and um, I can know the situations, the people, the kids um, that are safest for my kid. And um, there's so much more out now on attachment parenting um, during the preteen and teen years mm -hmm. and how to manage it, how to set limits, how to stay close to your kid. I mean, this is what, you know, I'm devoted to. And I've been doing this for years with mothers and fathers. And um, I'm really just teaching them and coaching them to, to trust their instincts. That's so powerful. And I think it's very easy within parenthood to get swayed against going with one's instincts um, because we're seeing what the community is doing and perhaps it's different. Perhaps, like you say, the culture has shifted, but I like that you are just guiding people back to what's natural. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, you know, mothers will come to our workshop and they'll say, it's so hard for me to find other parents who feel the way that I do, you know, that, I, that share the same values. They think I'm, you know, overprotective. And um, when I want to know the parents of the family, of the kid where my daughter wants to go visit, you know, like basic stuff is like knowing the other adults so that the adult right. can be communicating um, about what the kids are doing. I mean, really, we're talking fundamental stuff, but mm -hmm. you'd be surprised um, how alone um, parents can feel in, and, and how they get, you know, probably, you know, you've heard the kind of helicopter mother critique. And what I always say about that is, Hey, listen, 
The media loves to talk about helicopter mothers and fathers. Helicopter mothers are rare. Yeah, they're pathological. Helicopter fathers, but so rare. And what I like to say is, look, as parents, we can be the helicopter pad. We can be the grounded presence for our kids. We're there and we've got their back. And, and I, I give mothers permission at our workshop. Um, I say, you know, hover, it's fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's okay. And, um, you know, your job is to be in your kid's life, to be at the center of your kid's life. Um, that's what your job as a parent is. Mm. Thank you for summing that up so nicely. I like that imagery of being the helicopter pad. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. So, you know, um, and so I, I coach moms when they're getting feedback from friends or family, like get it, you know, you're being too involved and, and to just trust your, trust your instincts, you know? Um, some mothers are saying, you know, I'm not even, I'm not involved enough. And I give them permission um, to um, trust their, their instincts and their values. Um, um, our kids need us. It's, it's a, it's a crazy world out there and they need us to be really involved. Definitely. Not doing their homework, not, you know, I'm just, right. Yeah. You know, that's but, totally different. <laughs> um, but um, being, being present, being, being in there. So if a parent starts to notice that the orientation has shifted more towards the peer group, what things can we do to reorient our children towards a more healthy focus? Uh, such a great question. Um, so basically, um, I recommend either our book or Gordon Newfeld's book. Um, mm-hmm. Gordon Newfeld has created a whole fantastic institute called the Newfeld Institute, and he's got great videos. We have um, at Mothering and Daughtering also we have an online course called the Mothering Course, um, which is in depth. Um, and and in this in these books and in these courses. One of the things that's discussed is something called the retrieval process. Hmm. And um, so it could be on a spectrum, like it could be just a little bit that's happening. And um, there could be just eye rolling and attitude and um, some of which is just kind of is kind of natural. Like I said, the resistance Mm-hmm. And so I coach mothers not to take it personally, but to just keep an eye on it um, because there's a power dynamic that can happen. And this is why I say the, you know, the parent needs to stay in the alpha position. So <laughs> um, yeah. if the, if the preteen or teen is pushing up against them um, to just hold, hold center. Um, and that's, you know, easier said than done, but really, um, a lot of these courses, these videos, these books are, are giving strategies from an attachment parenting perspective. So it could be as simple as if there's just a little bit happening, 
Um, it could be just really just reining in like, okay, um, there's really simple ways that I advise parents to, for instance, connect before you direct. Mm. I this at any age. Um, it's like find your kid's eyes, find your kid, even for a moment, say, hey, you, hey, sweetie, even if they don't even connect eyes. But it's like the rituals of connection throughout the day, um, the hellos and the goodbyes are really crucial for strengthening um, relational bonds, not just with our kids, but with our partners and friends. Um, And I really, um, in a very simple way, I recommend parents really take advantage of that. Like you can retrieve your kid every day. Um, You know, go out of your way to put down your phone, Um, have them put down their phone if they've got one in their hands. Like, hey, you, hello, touch, hug. We are relational beings. So it can be very simple practices like that. Um, when mothers opt in to our website, there's, um, the opt-in is a free video, um, which is how to get closer to your daughter when it feels like she's pushing you away. And it's a 45 minute video that we offer, um, that Eliza and I put together with five steps to, maintain connection in basic, simple ways every day. Oh, wow. Um, Now the retrieval process is a whole nother thing. That's where there's a, if there's a very difficult behavioral problem happening and it's been going on for a while, that can take a bit longer. And that's something um, that, you know, is a little bit more like an intervention. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And Again, not every therapist, you know, if therapy is one of the ways, will will have this approach. Um, they might be more behavioral um, in their approach. From an mm-hmm. attachment perspective, Gordon Newfeld has said, if you have your child's heart, no discipline is necessary. Mm. So it's really like how do I find my kid again? How, and sometimes like I'll say to parents, you need to get away for a few days, just the two of you. And that's why, frankly, while while one of the reasons why our workshop can be so effective in strengthening the bond, because just the act of getting in a car, driving to Kripalu uh, where we teach and spending two days together in a workshop that's fun and about connection and, and um, it's just really, it's like a retrieval process. It's like, like any relationship, you know, same with a romantic relationship, having that date, that time, that weekend away. um, We are relational beings. We need that quality time to connect. Mm -hmm. Mm. This is bringing up a lot, like, as I'm thinking about my relationship with my two and a half year old, even, yes. and, and starting to think about some of the things that I can do to better connect with him before I direct, like you mentioned, yes, um, and just building in more time for quality time, um, just as a, a little piece into my journey. So my son just recently weaned from breastfeeding. Yes. And 
as you were speaking to me, I'm envisioning our current reality, which is we wake up, we go downstairs, and I prepare breakfast, and there's been a huge power struggle that's been happening right now where he'll tell me what he wants to eat. I prepare it. I give it to him, and he says, no, I don't want that. And I say, okay, well, I'll put that over here. And then he says, oh, I want it. I'm like, okay, here you go. And no, I don't want that. And I'm, as you were speaking, I started thinking about how we used to start our days when I was breastfeeding with immediate connection. I would bring him into my bed. We would nurse for about 15 minutes or so and snuggle and hug and then start our days. And now we're kind of starting like just getting right off to the races. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Um, and so that makes me think about how we've lost that connection or we're no longer grounding ourselves within our relationship. We're just getting straight off into the to-do list. You know, let's, we got to yeah. eat, we got to clean up. And um, <laughs> I'm wondering whether or not that could be playing a role in that, that power struggle that I'm starting to see a lot of uh, in recent well, weeks. Well, you know, for sure. Um, and he's developmentally, that's counter will. Counter will is a marvelous thing if you understand it. So, so a toddler, um, the great book to read, um, for toddlerhood, Mm -hmm. um, um, and preschool is written by a woman who also is part of the Newfeld Institute. Her name is Deborah McNamara and her book is marvelous. It's called rest, play, grow. Okay. And if you understand counter will, um, in toddlers and teenagers, it's a fantastic instinct. And if you as an adult understand it, you can have fun with it and play with it. Ooh, okay. Talk to me more. What is counter will? Let's start there. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's like a survival strategy, developmental strategy. I mean, there, it, it happens during developmental phases when they are moving out into the world. So it's like, they're, <laughs> they're trying to assert themselves and yeah. find their own way. So it's good. Um, and, and you can play with it. You know, it's sort of like the idea of, of when you give a kid um, the illusion of choice. You say, do you want an apple or an orange? <laughs> right. Two things that you've already said, like, okay, this is fine for him to eat. Yeah. 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 So it's probably a combination of... Um, you know, that you could focus a little bit more. It doesn't even have to be time necessarily. It's just the quality of, hey, you, and giving a hug or, you know, I mean, uh, listen, that's going to be part of it. But the other part is um, understanding counter will, welcoming it, being almost being entertained by it um, and fascinated by it. Because it's right. true in preteens and teens too. It's like the second toddlerhood. <laughs> so for if we're, you know, we want this to happen. Just like, you know, we want, you know, when when our kids are five, six, seven months, for stranger anxiety to happen. Stranger anxiety means that that they've got a really good, strong attachment. Mm-hmm. And when they start to get nervous about someone they don't know, it's 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 a great sign. You know, it means that they're developing an attachment. Right. And so same with, um, you know, counter will means that they're, they're 
they're finding their own um, independent um, experience of living for the first time. <laughs> and, um, um, and so if we um, understand that it's necessary um, part of their development, then it's, yeah, then it's a creative process. I mean, it's not always easy. Yes. But, but here's the thing, like, like, um, there's a, there was a great, there was a great article years ago, maybe a decade ago, um, the Neanderthal in the crib. And I'm, I'm forgetting the guy's name, the physician Harvey, um, the, you know, the happiest toddler on the block and the happiest. Oh, yes. And I remember there was a New York times article and I really, I really love this because it was, it was telling a story about how we try to reason with our toddlers. And, you know, in some ways we, we try to reason with our teenagers in ways that, you know, they just don't have their, their frontal lobe, <laughs> their executive function fully developed. And so with a, so, so with a toddler, um, you know, let's say we're in the supermarket and the toddler starts to have a tantrum because they want cookies. Yep. And, um, and they're flailing around and you're going, Oh my God, what am I going to do with this situation? And literally what I think his name, what, what I think his name was Harvey Karp. What he yes. say, he'd say, you know, ideally, you know, you, you actually want to get down on the floor and meet them where they are. Like you want cookies, not you can't have cookies. Um, you can't reason with a tantrum, but you kind of connect where they are. You mirror them. Hmm. And um, I'm not saying the tantrum will necessarily go away, but you'd be surprised. It's not that you, you just say, yeah, you want cookies. You want cookies. Yeah, we're going to go home now. You want cookies. Um, and, 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 and it can stop a little child in their tracks because it's like, wow, they're hearing me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, every child's different. Um, but, but when you understand some of these basic developmental concepts, um, and a, from an attachment perspective, it can be more creative and fun. I like that. I think that's been missing from my motherhood journey as of late because the toddler years, <laughs> I don't know how long this is going to last him. Um, I guess he should grow out of it by five or six or whatever, but it has felt so draining to me. Oh my God. You have to get Ribble McDamara's book. Order it. I mean, you will, it'll be your Bible. It's such a great book. She's brilliant. And she makes it so much more creative and she helps, um, you know, the parents that I work with who have toddlers just really understand um, and make it a really creative and not draining process. And it's, mm -hmm. it's the same, as I say, again, with preteens and teens, um, it doesn't, you know, my goal with the mothers I work with, either coaching or 
um, at workshops is, is for them to know that, um, that they don't have to mother on empty that they, you know, sometimes I call it mothering as a martial art. Hmm. It's like ninja moves, ninja attachment moves. And, and you can get really good at it. And the, the better you get at it, and the more skilled you are at understanding from an attachment perspective, hmm. if you have your child's heart, even a toddler, because <laughs> you do have your toddler's heart, hmm. um, um, th- there's, there's just very creative ways to make it easier to parent and not a drain. Yes. I'm ready. I'm definitely going to look up that book. <laughs> I'm still floored, I think, by the connection that's been unraveled in this conversation between toddlerhood and teenagerdom, if if you will. <laughs> um, I've never connected that before, but I can see very clearly right now yes. how the two can be very similar. Yes. Yeah. There's 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 a big you know, stepping into a whole nother realm of, of development and, um, you know, all the, all the stuff that comes with that. Um, very similar, you know, that teenagers have, um, more words at their disposal and they're, they're a lot bigger, so it can be tougher, but, but if you, frankly, if you understand it from an attachment perspective at this stage, um, you know, you, you're, you've really got a good foundation um, mm. as you move towards preteen and teen years. That's, that, that makes me feel hopeful. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I, there's so much to be hopeful about. It just gets, you know what? It gets better and better. It, it, it's like the teen, I'm so done with that it has to be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's hard enough Yes, you know, with that. We don't have as much support as we usually need because we're not, we don't have extended families and, you know, often both parents are working and, you know, it's hard mm-hmm. enough, but if, if, if we understand better attachment and the attachment needs of our children and how good we can get at that, um, Parenting can be so much more fun, fulfilling, and not such a drain. Yes. Hmm. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, knowledge is power. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, Syl, for sharing all that you have. And you've oh. mentioned a couple times, like your workshop, your website, and everything. So where can people stay in touch with you and learn more about your work? Yeah. Um, so our website's motheringanddaughtering.com. And, um, I can be, yeah, um, everything's there basically, um, information about our products, our online course. Um, if you sign up on our email list and opt in, you get that free video. And then, um, I send out, um, a blog every two weeks, um, uh, every other week, uh, every two weeks, it's either, um, something called We Thrive TV, where, which is sort of my podcast, but it's a, it's a video and um, where I, I interview um, 
you know, some, someone regarding issues around um, raising preteen and teen daughters. Mm. And then I have a written blog. Um, so twice a month, something comes out. And, and then the motheringcourse.com is our other uh, website where um, there's information about our online course. Uh, we have two editions, the preteen edition and the teen edition. And, um, and then, of course, our book. Um, but it's all there um, on our website. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just been such a pleasure to talk with you, um, honestly. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation in all honesty. It's much yes. appreciated. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you so much for what you're doing and for being, you know, a bridge um, for mothers, um, who are looking towards, you know, the years ahead. (laughs) And that's it for this episode of Young Honest Mother, the podcast, which means it's time for you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts on social media and tag me at Young Honest Mother, and then pass this episode along to friends and family who need to know that they're not alone on this journey either. Until next time, I'm your host, Morris Young.